1: premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: People of Paris, Attention. Calling Tau City. Everyone has a story in the district of wonders. Come and find yours. Transmissions waiting to be found and i them to
3: the moon. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome, hello and welcome to show 577. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hope everyone is fine and dandy. Now apologizing off the back. If you can hear noises in the background, because we have got, I don't know if I mentioned, Daisy the Doberman, my new puppy, our new puppy, and I haven't got five minutes to myself. I kind of just lock her in a cage when I'm doing this, and she's in, she's hounding the other two, or oh, she is the boss, and she's there now, it's just stressing us out trying to get this show done. So... We'll charge on. I'll tell you what's coming in the day's show. The main fiction is... Oh, man, stop it. In events. Go on. In events. There, I'll leave that in so you know, you know how... <laughs> what, what, what kind of stress and pressure I'm under. Right, the main fiction is The Good Food by Michael Easel. This story was first published in Beyond the Stars at Galaxy's Edge 2016. Yes. And end of the month, end of the month, Mr. JJ Campanella with his science news. That's all coming in today's show. Now, Patreon there, we are exactly the same. 433. Yes, come on, it's come on, just chunting away again. Don't forget. Which I actually have to actually do myself, mind. This is a little reminder for myself. The serial kicks off in the serial format in the first, the first of March or whatever that kind of day round there. I think it probably might be the first, whatever that day is. I'm not too sure. So that kicks off as well. So if you want to come over to Patreon, five dollars a month will get you ad free shows, red dwarf and. A fantastic John Brummer audiobook in serial format presented by Amy H. Sturgis and narrated by Drew Severtini, who is the host of Tales to Terrify. Yeah, so let us jump in then to... I get run off your way for doing that. The Good Food by Michael Easel. like I say, first published in Beyond the Stars at Galaxy Edge, two thousand sixteen. Michael is a former U.S. Marine who now works as a project coordinator for an Emmy-winning makeup effects shop in Southern California. His writing has appeared in numerous anthologies as well as On Spec magazine and Austin Scott Cards in the Galactic Medicine Show. Now, this story is narrated by Graham Dunlop. Graham is a a software solutions architect and voice actor living in Melbourne, Australia. He is the former co editor of the Fantasy Podcastle Podcastle. Yes, Podcast Podcastle. And former host of the YA podcast, Cast of Wonders. You can find him on Google Plus. I think it's actually dead in the nail that thing now, isn't it? Not not doing too good, Google And he occasionally tweets and there's a link there to Graham's and I didn't know Graham was actually former co-editor of Podcastle. Mm, oh, what a shame, Graham. What a shame, lad. Talent's gone to waste. So, the Starship Suva is very proud to present.
4: The Good Food by Michael Ezel. The dropship's retros kicked in hard, blowing away rich black soil that had crept onto the landing pad over the decades since someone had last been there. Self-adjusting struts scraped against the ferrocrete's surface as the ship's weight settled onto the planet. The specially treated ferrocrete didn't allow plants to grow on the half-mile square, otherwise it would have been taken over long ago. Aggressive green life rose up all around the landing pad. A jungle world ruled by trees and vines, populated solely by insects. Until today, Inside the dropship, Jensen unbuckled himself from the pilot's couch. He giggled out loud in the empty cabin. Pilot? More like a glorified gardener sent to spread some new shit around the back 40. The computer did all the... Touch down. Jensen. You may move about the cabin now. Yeah, thanks, Moira, Jensen said. The words came out a little garbled. His throat felt like he'd tried to swallow a jellyfish. Hypersleep, phlegm. All this tech, and they still couldn't solve that one. The eggheads who sent him assured him it would clear up within 36 hours of waking. Going on three days now, and he still sounded like a a four-pack-a-day smoker. "'What's the distance to the anomaly line?' Jensen said. "'3.7 miles from the centre of the pad. It has gotten closer, Jensen.' "'Yeah, I know. I read the brief.' Just making conversation. You don't have to be crabby. Supposedly, they modelled the ship's AI on Moira Tiernan, the designer of these long-range ships. Jensen always envisioned her as a woman who'd insist on paying her half of the dinner tab and give you a hearty handshake at the end of the date. "'Shall I begin the wake-up procedure for Roy?' Moira said. "'Sure.' Bet he's going to pee all over every tree in sight, Jensen said. Doubtful, there is no significant build-up of waste during stasis. Uh, yeah, yeah, Geez, Moira, it's a figure of speech. Let in some light, will ya? Jensen stood and stretched his back as Moira opened the re-entry shields over the thick windows. The odd bluish tinge to the sunlight streaming in made the bridge feel like the inside of a fish tank. He'd been told, even shown photos, but still... Not even Moira interrupted this first silent stare at Seed World 47 Alpha, a lush primordial jungle with small insects buzzing, flitting, jumping, carrying on a furious pace of life. Two centuries of terraforming had paid off. But just a bit over three miles from here, the greenery ended on a neat line that ran arrow-straight for a quarter-mile, a mass extinction that photos from 4-7-Alpha's lone monitoring satellite couldn't explain. The clickety-click of toenails on the deck announced Roy's arrival. The dog looked like Jensen felt, groggy, a little off-centre and in need of a good stretch. Hey, boy! Jensen put out a hand and Roy trotted over. Big for a Belgian Malinois, Roy's shoulders came up to Jensen's waist. Benson scrubbed the reddish-blonde fur behind the dog's ears, and Roy responded with a deep play bow that stretched his back. Vertebrae crackled, and Roy shook himself like he'd just come in from a rainstorm. He nuzzled Jensen's hand, flipped it up with his nose. Jensen laughed and scrubbed between Roy's ears again. You're getting soft, trooper. Roy trotted over and put his front paws on the window ledge to look out into the jungle. A flexible speaker implanted in the dog's neck turned throaty growls into an approximation of human speech using a few basic words and phrases. Go pee! Jensen cocked an eyebrow at the camera in the cabin ceiling. Moira, anything to say about that? The lower hatch is open. Tell that mutt not to urinate on my flanks. Cold, crisp, the air tasted oddly like a fruit-flavoured gum from back home. He'd been more than a little leery of stepping outside without a helmet, but Moira called him a pussy. A pussy? A damn computer shouldn't be able to talk to a decorated veteran like that. Sure, there was enough oxygen to keep him alive here, but what if the plant extinction had something to do with an airborne pathogen? Moira reminded him that whatever killed off the plants hadn't harmed anything else. The insects were still alive. So he went with Roy, but he still wore his combat suit and carried a maglev rifle. Damned if he would let a smart-ass computer shame him into getting killed. He tried to keep his combat edge, but the three-mile walk through gorgeous flora eventually had him admiring his surroundings. Sweet-smelling tube flowers at least two feet across their petals every colour combination Jensen's brain could process, and some it couldn't, with yellow stamen thicker than his arm. More plants no higher than his ankle, with flowers the size of his pinky nail. He let Roy range ahead and mark his new territory, and the dog had a lot to mark. Trees and vines arched up into a canopy that displayed its own rainbow of fruits above Jensen's head, which the millions of bugs here put to good use, making more bugs. The combat suit generated a mild electromagnetic field that kept the bugs away, but pretty soon Jensen didn't have to worry about it. When he reached the edge of the jungle... He noticed the insects seemed to stay behind an invisible line about three feet back from the last plants. As seed planet catastrophes go, this one didn't seem too bad. Looked like they just got the mixture of early insects wrong. Sometimes the smart boys back home guessed wrong. The genetic alterations made to plants that grew under this bluish light could very well have made them tasty to an insect that would otherwise ignore them. But what the hell did a grunt know about these things? He was just here to take samples and report back. The clean, straight line of demarcation had Jensen feeling antsy, though. What insect ate everything in a perfect line like that? Space locusts? The rich soil where the jungle stopped appeared churned up, as if a well-disciplined platoon of wild hogs had come through here but Seed World 4-7-Alpha had no life bigger than a dragonfly before Jensen and Roy arrived. The introduction of larger species had to be carefully controlled over decades to ensure a stable food chain. Jensen selected a silver tube off his belt and knelt to scoop up a soil sample. He'd let Moira do all the brain work. Ping! Ping! The motion alert on his suit made Jensen snap to his feet. A vibration on his upper left chest pointed him toward whatever set off the sensor. Not Roy, judging from the sound of crashing underbrush and snapping branches, the dog was exploring the jungle about 50 feet to his right. Gun up, moving heel to toe, stable shooting platform. He scanned for movement over the sights. Insects flitted before him, but his motion alert was set to combat spec. It would only register something larger than two feet in length. And as far as Jensen knew, the only two things in this star system that met that criterion were Roy and him. He whispered into his throat, Mike, Roy, here. Within moments, Roy stood at his side, ears up and forward, eyes locked ahead. Attack us, Roy's next speaker said. No, Jensen said. Attack them? That had actually been Jensen's first instinct. In his world, when you knew where all the good guys were, you shot at anything else that moved, especially when you're light years from home and back up. However, he worked with a science wing now, better than being mothballed after the war, and none of those pinheads had ever seen combat. They just wouldn't understand if he killed some life form out here, ours or otherwise. No, only look. Go now, Jensen said. Roy obeyed without hesitation. He slunk off into the brush to the left. Jensen stayed in the green, away from the line of dark soil and rocks, three feet to his right. Unsure of exactly which side he should watch, he just stayed put and waited. Roy's frantic barks set Jensen in motion like a star's pistol. He hustled through the brush, snapping twigs and crushing plants and flowers. He skidded to a stop next to his dog, finger a millimetre from the trigger. The hollow boom of Roy's barking had brought all the flitting insects to a halt. The dog stood in the green, but his eyes locked on the dark soil. Out there, in the dead zone. Off, Jensen yelled. Roy stopped barking. He circled Jensen, excited and whining. Move, something move, Roy said. Out there. Ping, ping. The suit alarm and Roy's renewed barking made Jensen flinch so hard he almost shot off his own foot. Did he really see that? A mound of dirt out there? Had it been there before? He hadn't really paid attention. It looked freshly churned up, but so did all the soil close to the line. Off! Roy stopped barking again. He came to the heel position without being told. Something move. Talk. Talk? Talk? talk to you, Jensen said. That gave him the creepies. Yes. Bad feel, Roy rumbled. The dog trembled against Jensen's leg. Whatever pinged his motion sensor and churned up that dirt had Roy worried. Jensen had seen the dog leap into a gun pit full of Rotellian marines with heavy weapons and kill three men with his teeth. Nothing scared that dog. Except whatever the fuck this was. Okay, we're heading back. We have samples for Moira to analyze anyway, Jensen said. The two soldiers backed away together. This soil contains an abundance of a substance very much like mica, with atoms arranged in hexagonal sheets. But it is not mica. Moira's clipped voice rang off the stainless steel walls of the ship's tiny galley. Well, what is it then, Jensen said. I don't know, Moira said. Blowing on the cup of Ransom black coffee did nothing to make it any less than molten. Jensen dumped reconstituted cream into the tarry black liquid and took a sip. Blech. What do you mean? You know everything. Hardly. I know only what my human programmers have told me, Moira said. For a computer, she put on the human-style snark pretty well. Yeah, well, that makes two of us. So what's the big deal? An alien rock is bound to have alien minerals, right? Jensen said. He tossed Roy a piece of soy jerky. The dog gave it a half-hearted sniff but didn't eat it. Since they'd got back, he'd done nothing but lay there with his head on Jensen's foot. For a computer, Moira had a wide range of ways to express her exasperation with Jensen. She actually sighed. Early samples of soil from seed planet 4-7-alpha indicate only trace amounts of this unknown substance, along with low readings of fossilized plant material. That's the main reason we chose 4-7-alpha. If plants grew here before, it stands to reason, which is all very fascinating, I just want to know what gave me and my dog the creeps out there, Jensen said. I have no way of knowing what would cause an irrational psychological response in a human, much less a dog. What I do know for sure is that the soil is now riddled with this material that was once scarce. That, Jensen, would be called an anomaly in any basic high school science course. The food printer beeped and Jensen eased Roy's head off his foot. He stroked the dog's neck. Shake it off, big boy. We got czar on the way. He went to the printer and retrieved a pepperoni pizza. A disk of repurposed proteins dripping with orange oil. The first old Italian chef who came up with pizza would have killed himself if he saw this in the future. When Jensen sat down again, Roy put his head right back on his foot. Jensen? Moira sounded a little put out. Even Roy looked up when Jensen just kept eating. Good food, Roy growled, said. Jensen tossed a piece on the floor and Roy snapped it up. Are you going to act like a juvenile or are you going to discuss this with me, Moira said. Fake pepperoni grease ran down Jensen's chin. No expense spared for the troops. Were we discussing? I thought you were just insulting me. This is why the real Moira argues against manned missions. You need to keep emotion out of the equation. Blah, blah, blah. Lots of mica. What's the deal? As I said, it is not mica. Although it appears crystalline, it has a component I cannot identify. But I am unable to rule out the possibility that it is some type of unknown biological material. Like, it's alive? Jensen stopped eating. No, I believe it may be waste of a sort. Waste? Waste? as in the stinky torpedo, do I even want to know what kind of thing would shit Micah? Of course you do, and we're going to find out. Jensen had tried the old military joke, Who is we? You got a mouse in your pocket? For all the sighs and tisks, Moira apparently hadn't been programmed with a human sense of humour. The giant ferns and squatty fruit trees made him feel like the star of some old hollow cereal where the heroes travelled back in time. But the wet jungle smell and the trickle of sweat down the middle of his back reminded him of shipping to an uprising back home. Columbia. Nasty, nasty fighting. Twitchy now. Rifle already up, though he didn't know what he was looking for. The fact that Roy stayed glued to his hip didn't help matters. He didn't have the heart to order the dog out front. The canine's normally perky ears had been laid back against his sleek skull since they left the ship. ''Okay, Roy?'' The speaker vibrated so quietly. ''No.'' A dragonfly the size of a sparrow swooped across Jensen's vision and one wing struck the bridge of his nose. A high-pitched whine and sonic cracks from his maglev rifle filled the air, Plant life around them exploded in green gobs of juice and fibre. Only a split second, but thirty high-explosive rounds had sprayed across the landscape. Damn it! Teach me to keep my finger away from... Jensen, report! Moira's insistent voice in his earpiece. Just trimming the bushes a little. Relax, Moira, Jensen said. Last thing he needed right now was some damn computer. Roy suddenly began to whine and pace about. He eyed the jungle ahead, near the line of demarcation. What? Jensen said. Roy, what is it? Bad. And then the dog was gone, running toward the dead zone. No, here. Roy, damn it, heel. Jensen ran blindly, following his dog's crushed path through the virgin undergrowth. When he ran out of the jungle and spotted Roy, Jensen almost wished he hadn't found him. Standing with hind feet on the green vegetation and front feet on the black soil, Roy quivered in place. He stared at the horizon, at nothing at all. At first, Jensen didn't notice the little brown lump against Roy's feet. Then it grew out of the churned soil and leaned against the dog's foreleg. It looked like an overgrown hedgehog with sleek brown hair. No, not hair. Shiny stuff. Looked hard on the surface. Roy! Here! Jensen whispered. Nothing happened. One foot at a time, Jensen shuffled toward Roy and the little creature. His rifle stayed up, but he didn't really know what he would shoot. If he fired now, he'd take Roy's leg off at the shoulder. Roy! Nothing. The dog just shivered in place and stared at the horizon while that freaky little thing rubbed on his leg. Jensen reached out to grab Roy's collar. The thing against Roy's leg looked up, revealing a tiny little face amid all the crystalline hair. Big brown watery eyes in what looked like a leathery grey face. It didn't seem aggressive at all. In fact, it looked cuter than any kitten Jensen had ever seen. His left hand hung in space, index finger extended to hook Roy's collar. Those soft round eyes held him entranced. The creature leapt up and bit off the end of Jensen's finger. No pain, no sensation at all, not really teeth, but a beak-like thing behind those grey lips that nipped the end of his left index finger off at the first knuckle. The warm spatter of blood on his boot triggered a deep reflexive breath. Sudden adrenaline hammered Jensen's brain and sparks flew in his vision. Shit! He backpedaled, trying to line up a shot that wouldn't hit Roy. The dog remained still as a statue. Roy, here! Damn it, wake! Ping, ping! The alarm stopped Jensen cold. From about ten feet out, a ripple began in the soil. The creature that bit him didn't move. It just stared at him with cartoon character eyes as Jensen's blood dripped down its hair or scales. When the ripple in the dirt got close to it, the creature let out a sharp shriek. It started hopping toward Jensen on stumpy legs that reminded him of an armadillo. Then the dirt wave broke open and dozens of them came at him. Exact copies of the first one, all with cute disarming eyes and razor-sharp beaks. Survival instinct took over and Jensen hosed the advancing wave with the maglev rifle. He emptied his entire magazine and the jungle filled with supersonic cracks and shrieks. When hit by titanium slugs, the creatures burst in a combination of gore and what looked like bits of shale. When he reached for a new magazine, he saw how stupid he'd been. He should have run. The first five hit him before he could snap the new mag in place. Bit right through a suit that stopped high-energy weapons taking shallow scallops of his flesh. He screamed and smashed them with his rifle, squashing three of them before his foot caught on a low bush and he went down. A wave of them crashed over him, shrieking that seemed to come from inside his skull. Biting, biting, a never-ending wave of hungry mouths, a roar like Jensen had never heard. Roy hit him and the creatures at full speed, turning the fight into a whirling ball of blood, shell, fur and teeth. The dog snapped and chomped, ripping, crushing, throwing the creatures aside. The disciplined military canine had disappeared, replaced by a prehistoric wolf dog living through its teeth and fury. Jensen found the strength to push himself to his feet. He froze when he saw the line of creatures. They'd followed him through the brush, so it was hard to count them hidden in the greenery, but there were easily two hundred of them. Why didn't they just come then? Roy growled, and the closest creatures seemed to fold in on themselves. It reminded Jensen of an old vid he saw of a hedgehog rolling up. In an instant, they were hard little balls of brock. Figuring he'd worry about the wise later, Jensen backed toward the ship. He slapped a fresh magazine in place. Roy, let's go! Back of the ship! This time, Roy obeyed. He kept his teeth bared at the creatures and backed towards Jensen. Once Jensen had Roy under the muzzle of his rifle... The jungle filled with a rustling noise. The creatures he could see moved back toward the dirt they'd come from. He didn't exactly know what happened. He'd never had first contact training. All Jensen knew was that they needed to leave. Now. Moira's surgical arms made short work of Jensen's injuries. The missing fingertip had been the worst of it. The rest of the wounds seemed terribly shallow for creatures apparently bent on killing him. I am still unable to identify the chemical they left in the bites, but it doesn't seem to be harming you. Perhaps it only serves to deaden the pain so they can continue to feed. Jensen didn't answer. He just watched her robotic arms work on Roy. Silicone-tipped metal fingers delicately lifted Roy's upper lip and pulled another bit of hard material out. His mouth and upper neck were covered in tiny cuts. What looked like porcupine bristles made of crystalline rock were stuck all over his face and inside his mouth. Jensen held Roy across his lap while Moira worked. He thought for a while before he answered the computer. That's all incredibly interesting information, Moira, but not really. Let's prep the ship to leave. No answer as Moira dropped one of the spines into an analysis chamber. The chamber's armoured door closed and white light flashed from the seams. Inside, the sample was incinerated and the gases analysed. Interesting, Moira said. Initial analysis shows this material has what we might call a genetic code that contains something similar to mica and an unidentifiable organic base. They're made of minerals? Jensen said. By our definition, perhaps. It is simply a life form we cannot explain. That's the closest my data banks can come to an answer. In truth, it's much more complex. A being that is mostly rock could survive for thousands, perhaps millions of years between meals. Rocks don't need sustenance. But the other part of them does, whatever that is, Jensen said. Apparently, I do detect bits of plant life among these samples, as well as bits of you, of course, Moira replied. You said there were possibly plants here before. You think they ate them all and then, what, hibernated after that? Perhaps. Normally, if a species experienced a population explosion greater than their food source could support, most of them would die off, Moira said. But if they could hibernate, they could just... "'Wait for more food to show up,' Jensen said. "'You're not nearly as ignorant as you first appeared.' Jensen flipped a middle finger at the ceiling camera. The last of the crystalline things came out of Roy's mouth, and he hopped off Jensen's lap and shook himself. "'Go sleep,' he growled, said. The dogs slumped off toward their quarters. Roy had a kennel, of course, but he always slept in Jensen's quarters. Jensen didn't blame him for wanting to sleep. He felt dog-tired himself. Okay, Moira, let's get the ship ready for launch. I'm actually looking forward to Stasis this time. Get some rest, Jensen. Tomorrow we'll capture one of those creatures and then we can go back. Hey, I said prep the ship for launch. I'm not going out there again. And since you don't have any legs, or a body for that matter, looks like we are out of luck, Jensen said. I shall remind you that you are an employee of the Interstellar Colonization Committee. I'm a soldier. Even more reason for you to follow orders. I quote, If any physical cause of the plant's extinction can be found, a sample shall be returned to Earth. Yeah, we got samples out the ass. Prep to launch, Moira. Jensen, these are unique life forms. Fine, I'll do it myself from override control. Jensen stood to leave and swayed on his feet. Damn, all that adrenaline has me dizzy. Jensen, you are violating protocol by launching the ship on your own. They can fire me when I get back. With one hand on the wall, Jensen headed for the medbay hatch. It got harder to move by the second. A low growl stopped him cold. Roy stood in the hatch, hackles raised and teeth bared. Roy, what the hell are you doing? Off! The dog advanced on him, walking stiff-legged, eyes rolling, jaws dripping with drool. Roy, off! No sign of recognition. Jensen, he appears to have been affected by... No shit, Moira! Jensen backed away until he had a small table between himself and Roy. Feeling more and more dizzy, Jensen leaned on the table. He knew to take the bite on his forearm when Roy made his move and reach under to choke the dog out, but would he be able to stay upright long enough to do it? He took a deep breath to try and clear his head. He drew himself up as tall as possible the alpha dog. Roy! Jensen screamed as loud as he could. Sit! Now! Roy just stared at him, but the growling slowly stopped. He didn't budge, much less sit. Sit, Roy. Now! Something seemed to penetrate the brain behind those wild eyes. Roy's flanks crept toward the deck, millimeters at a time. Finally, he sat. When Jensen made for the hatch, Roy started to get up. No, Jensen said. You stay. Me go. Finally, Jensen lurched out the door and slapped the control panel. The hatch slid shut, hiding Roy's baleful stare. Jensen thought his balance would get better on his way to the bridge, but it just got worse. He felt feverish and all the bite wounds on his body started to throb. Once he got to the main controls, he keyed open the manual operation panel and set the launch order. The dropship had a built-in timer that tracked the best launch window to rendezvous with the skip ship in orbit out there. The screen read seven forty-eight thirty-two and counting. A little less than 8 hours and they'd be home free. Once they launched, everything was automatic back up into the belly of the skip ship and into stasis. a few months of sleep until they hit the skip gate in this corner of the universe. Then they'd blink into existence just on the far side of Saturn for the final glide home. His stomach suddenly hitched and he threw up all over his boots. Jensen, are you feeling ill? Moira said. Her voice sounded tinny and far away. No shit, Moira. The deck swam up to meet him, and he fell into the blackest sleep he'd ever known. He dreamt of whispering voices, speaking a language he could never hope to understand. Seemed hot in his sleeping quarters, and his bed felt rock hard. With a start, Jensen awoke on the steel deck of the bridge. Sweat soaked the fabric of his jumpsuit, and his mouth felt like a dry riverbed. Moira! What happened? He could hardly force the words out. He stood, keeping one hand on the wall. Moira! The eerie silence threatened to release a wild panic he could feel building in his belly. Jensen reached for his rifle. Not there. Now how in hell did that happen? The emergency weapons locker stood open. Everything gone. That made his heart start to hammer. Black dots swam in his vision and Jensen couldn't tell if it was adrenaline or the poison from the creatures. Well, maybe not poison, he did wake up. Moira would be proud of him for figuring that out. Whatever it was, had kept him down long enough to make him mica a hedgehog food if he'd been in the open. Their little bites weren't intended to kill, apparently. They just put you to sleep so you could be eaten alive.' When he gathered his wits enough to check the control screens, he saw why Moira hadn't answered him. Coolant alarms were blaring red bands across all the screens, but the sound had been muted. Someone, some thing, had screwed with the cooling system that kept Moira's giant computer brain alive. The dumb backup systems that ran the ship's operation had survived. That was a relief. The countdown to launch read 1542 and counting. He'd been out for over seven hours. Jensen checked all systems and saw that the lower hatch was stuck open. Security cameras showed a rock jammed in the track. Unarmed, Jensen felt exposed when he got to the hatch. He grabbed a fire extinguisher. A poor weapon, really, but the weight of it made him feel better. He was relieved to discover an actual rock jamming the door, not one of the creatures curled up in the track. He didn't need his extinguisher club. A quick peek outside. Roy lay there on his side, unconscious. His legs and body twitched like he was having a nightmare. Figure about 14 minutes to launch. Enough time to go out there and get Roy, if he wanted to. Jensen wasn't too sure. The creatures had obviously affected Roy. He said they talked to him, which meant they might have found a way to connect with the dog's mind. In the end, though, Jensen looked out there and saw his partner the partner who had kept him out of ambushes saved his life by putting his own body in harm's way saved his life by putting his own body in harm's way shared body heat with him in that frozen fighting hole during his first combat assignment keeping sharp eyes on the jungle jensen sprinted out to where roy lay when he reached the dog roy immediately opened his eyes he'd been had The rustle from the jungle made Jensen's body break out in goose flesh. Hundreds, no, thousands, they lined the launch pad. Most were the size of the ones that attacked him and Roy. Some were bigger, maybe half the size of Roy. Jensen looked down at his dog. At least his teeth weren't bared. The look in Roy's eyes was unlike anything Jensen had ever seen before. A certain intelligence. Roy, we need to go back of the ship. No, Roy growled, said. Why not? The creatures advanced across the pad and Jensen tried to figure his odds of beating them in the race back of the door. He wouldn't have bet half a credit on himself to win. They not hurt you, I say, Roy said. The creatures parted like a living wave as they reached Roy and Jensen. They went around them and started scampering up the ramp. They were entering the ship. Jensen stared at Roy. Roy, what is this? They say green is food. Roy nodded his head toward the jungle, an almost human gesture. Yeah, I see that. They're eating it. So? Jensen said. Roy stood and walked toward the ship. He stopped and looked back over his shoulder. But you, good food. Jensen watched in horror as the little creatures climbed into the ship. They poured over each other like water, cramming through the hatch at a terrifying speed. No! Jensen moved toward the ship. One of the creatures wheeled and let out those little shrieks that reverberated inside Jensen's skull. They advanced on him, their sharp beaks snapping. Rapid-fire barking brought it all to a stop. Roy stood between Jensen and the creatures. Those closest to him actually balled up into little rocks again. These creatures still went by the law of the jungle, the animal with the biggest teeth as king. They went back to boarding the drop ship. Roy stood on the ramp and wagged his tail at Jensen. Me go. You stay. Roy turned and went inside. The door slid shut and the ramp retracted. The rumble of pre-launch warm-up snapped Jensen out of his stupor and he ran for the jungle. He dove into the heavy brush just before the bellowing rockets shook this world for the second time. The entire jungle trembled at the drop ship's furious power. A million insects and one lonely primate watched that ship scream into the sky, headed back to Earth, where the good food lived.
0: to get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
3: And there you go. Big huge thank you to Michael and Graham. Thank you so much, gentlemen. It has been an honor. Thank you so much indeed. Really appreciate it. Michael, another story, please. Get it get in the post straight away if you don't mind. So <laughs> Hey, hey, Get oh, steady, get ready, Mr. J.J. Campanella with his science news Jim. sir.
5: Greetings and Sino-retribulations, my graticularly rubinious listeners, and welcome to this February 2019 science news update. I'm your host for this strangely monotonic science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. You're going to have to first forgive me, I'm coming off of a very sore throat, so hopefully you'll be able to uh, follow along without getting too frustrated. So let's start off with an update on an idiot scientist of the month. I talked about John Cui He in December 2018, the science update then, and I'm actually beginning to feel sorry for the poor chowderhead at this point. Let me remind you of what happened. Dr. He was the center of an international firestorm following reports that babies were born that had their germline edited by him. The germline are the cells that are passed down to the next generation after you reproduce, your sex cells. This was last November, and uh, he has now been fired by his university, the Southern University of Science and Technology in Sichuan, China, The university website said, quote, Effective immediately, the Southern University of Science and Technology of Sichuan will rescind its work contract with Dr. Jian-Ku He and terminate any of his teaching and research activities at the university, unquote. Dr. He's firing follows the release of an official Chinese investigation into his illegal actions. The official report says that Beginning in June 2016, in pursuit of, quote, personal fame and fortune, unquote, he evaded supervision to conduct reproductive genetic editing experiments prohibited by the state. Yes, that is, the Chinese communist state. And frankly, if you're going to annoy a state, communist China is the one you should avoid. From March 2017 until last November he recruited eight volunteer couples in which the male was HIV positive. Dr. He was able to do this without oversight because he, quote, forged all the forms for the ethical review board, unquote. Now, this is amazing for two reasons. First, because I guess I'm surprised that China has ethical review boards. So sorry about that. But, but second, that any single human being could be such a massive ass clown. He started his research by lying to the university on his ethics forms? Good one. What did he do then? Follow that up by, what, stealing candy from children and kicking puppies? What is wrong with this guy? Anyway, two of the volunteers became pregnant. One gave birth to Lulu and Nana, previously reported twins that I mentioned back in December. As far as we know, the other woman is still pregnant. According to the New York Times, the Chinese government report says, quote, this behavior seriously violates ethics and scientific research integrity and seriously violates relevant state regulations causing adverse effects at home and abroad, unquote. Yeah, how do you say duh in Chinese? Further, the head of the investigation team said that, quote, Dr. He, his colleagues, and relevant institutions will be dealt with seriously, according to the laws, while the suspected crimes will be handed over to the public security organs, unquote. I suspect this is brown pants time for Dr. He. Again, this is the Chinese communist government, which takes embarrassment of the state very seriously. And Dr. He gave the state a very red face. In the meantime, Guangdong Province, home of the university, will supervise the health of the genetically altered twin girls who have not been publicly identified. The worst part of living in a totalitarian state like China is that they take infractions of even the tiniest rules very seriously, and this did not involve breaking a minor law. At the end of December, Elsie Chen, a reporter for the New York Times, broke the news that Dr. He was being held under house arrest with his whole family at a guest house on the university campus. Chen photographed he on a balcony while under heavy security. That is scary as heck. In the U.S. or Europe, you do something like he did, and you will be heavily fined and lose your job. You will probably never get another job in academia again, but you will not likely go to jail. Your family should be unaffected, except in the most indirect way. In communist China, scarily, all bets are off. Not only may you end up serving hard time, but your family may be affected as well. If Dr. He disappears, he will either be breaking big rocks into little rocks somewhere, or working on the next super-soldier genetic project for the Chinese government in a buried bunker in Manchuria. Well... Whoever he creates won't be Captain America. Maybe Captain China? Captain Sino? Uh, Captain Asia? Uh, I guess we'll see. All right. First actual story of the evening. Killing chromosomes. Normal human cells have 46 chromosomes. And any deviation from this number, known as polyploidy, is typically lethal. Most chromosomes are simply too big with too many genes embedded in them to be able to have extra copies. Those extra genes churning out extra proteins are deadly, and the affected are never even born in most cases. In humans, the most common polyploidies are trisomies, which are characterized by the presence of one additional chromosome to give you three chromosomes as opposed to our usual two. These represent about three-tenths of a percent of all live births. The most common human trisomies are Down syndrome, which is associated with an extra chromosome 21, and Klinefelter syndrome, which is characterized by two X chromosomes and an extra chromosome Y. As I explained in my genetics classes, we can survive with an extra chromosome 21 because it is one of the smallest chromosomes with the fewest genes. We can survive with extra X chromosomes because any extra X is shut off and inactivated. We can even survive with extra Y chromosomes, again, because Y chromosomes are very tiny and there isn't a lot of extra stuff there. Because each chromosome contains hundreds of genes, the addition of even a single chromosome disturbs the delicate balance of gene products in cells. While the past decade has witnessed major advances in strategies to correct single-gene defects of rare monogenic disorders, only a few attempts have been made to genetically correct the overdose of genes for an entire chromosome in polyploid cells. Now, a study published in January in the journal Genome Biology reports the use of the CRISPR-Cas9 system to eliminate targeted chromosomes. Dr. Hui Yang of the Chinese Academy of Sciences was the lead author on the paper. There have been other methods over the years, but this is the first easy, efficient method to actually knock out entire chromosomes. And as I told you in previous podcasts, the CRISPR-Cas9 system depends on a single guide RNA that targets the Cas9 enzyme to specific genomic regions to induce double-strand DNA breaks which are then repaired by non homologous end joining or homology directed repairs harnessing the cell's own DNA repair machinery researchers can add or delete pieces of genetic material or make changes to the dna by replacing an existing segment with a customized piece of dna crispr cas9 mediated genome editing has been used to generate cells or animals carrying precise gene mutations including the rearrangement or deletion of chromosomal segments. So in this new study, Yang used multiple cleavages induced by CRISPR at multiple chromosome target sites. Each separately generated CRISPR targeted one specific site to selectively eliminate a sex chromosome in cultured cells, embryos, or tissues in vivo. Yang also used this approach to produce a targeted autosome that is a non-sex cell, loss in polyploid mouse embryonic stem cells with an extra human chromosome. He did this also in human-induced pluripotent stem cells with a trisomy of 21, and he even did it in cancer cells. Yang says, quote, CRISPR-Cas9-mediated targeted chromosome elimination offers a new approach in developing animal models and therapeutic treatments for polyploidy. Our study is the first to report x and autosome chromosome elimination via genome editing." Unquote. The clinical application of CRISPR-Cas9 mediated chromosome elimination is not immediately obvious, but the authors suggest it has the potential to treat a broad spectrum of human tumors and even cure trisomies like down syndrome, Klinefelter's and XYY syndrome. Like Dr. He's work, this type of repair needs to be done at the embryo level if it is to have any effect. You can't do those kind of repairs in a baby or even an embryo. There's just too many cells there. Yang explains, quote, CRISPR-Cas9 is like a scissors that can cut a tie a hundred times. The chromosome would be destroyed beyond the limits of cell repair. Therefore, the targeted chromosome cannot participate in the process of DNA replication during cell division and will disappear in the offspring, unquote. All right, next story. Parkour. My son is nuts about parkour. Well, as long as it's on a video screen. He's actually quite good at manipulating his original characters in a whole series of dangerous environments. If he ever actually decided he would try parkour in reality, I would step in immediately. It simply looks dangerous beyond belief. When I first saw parkour, it was probably about the same time that most people became aware of it. It was when Sebastian Foucault burst onto our movie screens in the opening sequence of Casino Royale as a terrorist pursued by James Bond through a building site. That's pretty much when it hit the mainstream. Foucault scrambled up vertical steel girders, boundered effortlessly across rooftops, he leapt down stairwells. His acrobatics were breathtaking and scary as heck. When physiologist Dr. James Croft of Edith Cowan University saw parkour, he wanted to understand how they use their bodies to pull off such daredevil stunts. Croft published his analysis in January in the Journal of Experimental Biology of how traceurs as they're called, the people who actually do parkour, can scale a wall so easily. Croft says, quote, Running up a vertical wall presents a unique set of challenges, and we wanted to know how traceurs could get over a wall. I first approached the Perth Parkour Association at one of their workshops for children. The athletes were keen to collaborate with us in the hopes of improving their skills, unquote. So Croft constructed a three-meter-high plywood wall with a force plate embedded where the athlete's foot would land. His team then filmed each runner as they strode up the runway, pushed off from the force plate embedded on the ground, before glancing off the second force plate in the wall so that the team could measure the forces involved there. After recording 67 successful ascents, the trio reconstructed the traceur's movements and realized they were moving almost horizontally at the instant when their foot landed ready for takeoff. The traceur's then propelled themselves upward as their trailing leg came forward. Croft noted the traceur's foot lands below hip height on the wall, allowing the runner to conserve much of the momentum gained during the run up as they propelled themselves upward. Most surprisingly, the athletes never straddled the floor and wall simultaneously, even though their coaches advised them to. Wondering which factors spell the difference between success and failure, Croft built a computer simulation based on the assumption that the most successful strategy would be to use the least energy to predict the athlete's optimal tactic. Surprisingly, he discovered that the recipe for success lies in an intermediate run-up speed rather than a full-speed charge at the wall. Croft found that athletes are able to convert the energy they build up during the intermediate approach and use that to redirect themselves off the ground for a successful and efficient liftoff. He then asked why don't they use an even slower run-up as it would be more efficient. According to Croft, a slower approach would result in the traceur hitting the takeoff with less momentum, requiring more exertion from the takeoff leg to make up for the slower approach, which is actually less efficient at the muscle level. And if the athletes charged at full speed down the runway, the takeoff leg would have to act as a shock absorber, which again would waste energy and wipe out the benefits of a faster approach. So traceurs naturally select an intermediate run-up speed allowing them to use the least amount of energy as they effortlessly bound up walls to continue vaulting and defying gravity. Next story, the evolution of grandmas. Grandmas are great, generally speaking, but evolutionarily speaking, it's kind of puzzling why women past their reproductive years live so long. Grandma's age and how close she lives to her grandchildren can affect those children's survival. Now that has been suggested by two new studies published February 7th in the journal Current Biology. One of those studies found that among Finnish families in the 17-1800s, to 1800s, the survival rate of young grandchildren increased 30% when their maternal grandmothers lived nearby and were 50-75 to 75 years old. The second study looked at whether that benefit in survival persists even when grandma lives far away. It doesn't, by the way. The studies are part of a broader effort to explain the existence of menopause, a rarity in the animal kingdom. The so-called grandmother hypothesis stipulates that, from an evolutionary standpoint, women's longevity is due to their contributions to their grandkids' survival thus extending their own lineage. In the Finnish study, researchers wanted to know if grandmas eventually age out of their beneficial role. The team used records collected on the country's churchgoers born from 1731 to 1895, including 5,815 children. Women at that time had large families, averaging almost six children, with about a third of the children dying before age of five. The team found that when maternal grandmothers living nearby were aged 50 to 75, their 2 to 5-year-old grandchildren had a 30% higher likelihood of survival than children whose paternal grandmothers were deceased. Similarly, paternal grandmothers and maternal grandmothers aged past 75 did not affect the children's overall survival. But when maternal grandmothers lived past age 75, their grandchildren's odds of dying before the age of two was 37% higher than a child with a deceased paternal grandmother. Dr. Simon Chapman at the University of Turku in Finland, who headed this study, states, quote, We said it was a joke when we had the idea for this study. Oh, killer grandmothers, wouldn't that be a great story? And then we found it, unquote. In the second study, Researchers wanted to know if the grandmother boost persisted even when the families lived far apart. The team used data from 1608 to 1799, encompassing 3,382 maternal grandmothers and 56,767 grandchildren in Canada's St. Lawrence Valley. As with the Finnish population, those early French settlers had large families and high child mortality, but they also moved around a lot. For every 100 kilometers of distance between mothers and daughters, the daughters had 0.5 fewer children, the research found. Older sisters whose moms were alive when the women started having children had more children, and those children were likely to survive to age 15, compared with younger sisters who started having children after their mother's death. Once a maternal grandmother moved 350 kilometers away or more, Her benefits cease to exist, says study co-author Dr. Patrick Bergeron, evolutionary biologist at Bishop's University in Sherbrooke, Canada. Chapman concludes about the two studies. These findings may explain an evolutionary reason for menopause, but may not hold true in today's modern world, where people have fewer kids and live farther from home. What would be interesting to look at is whether or not the presence of a grandmother alleviates the sort of mental health problems plaguing children today, unquote. Next story, strep throat. Ugh. Yes, I am getting over strep throat, so this story is appropriate. My son got strep throat last week, which is what partially drew me to this next story, and my daughter had strep throat this week. And guess whose turn it was next? Neither my son nor my daughter get strep throat very often, maybe once a year. But apparently there are kids out there who are seriously prone to strep, much more prone than once a year. Some kids get it again and again. It's also a problem little understood by scientists. Now a study that analyzed kids' tonsils hints at why such repeat infections may happen. The study came out February 6th in the journal Science Translational Medicine, and the work was done in the lab of Dr. Shane Crotty of the La Jolla Institute for Immunology. Crotty found that children with recurrent strep infections had smaller immune structures crucial to the development of antibodies in their tonsils than kids who didn't have repeat infections. Those who were frequently sore of throat were also more susceptible to a protein, deployed by the bacteria that causes the infection that disrupts the body's immune response. In the study, Crowdy examined tonsils, the immune tissue found in the back of the throat that had been removed from five to 18 year olds. Some of the children had their tonsils taken out because of recurrent strep infections. Others had their tonsils removed to resolve sleep apnea caused by enlarged tonsils. This group was a proxy for kids not plagued by repeated bouts of strep. Crotty's team looked at sections of tissue under a microscope and found that kids with recurring strep had smaller immune structures called germinal centers, and the centers had fewer of a particular kind of immune cell, a type of T cell. Those T cells help other immune cells known as B cells, which make antibodies to fight body infections. And I think I've talked about them before. Crotty concludes with, the kids with recurrent strep also had fewer antibodies to a protein used by the bacteria called group A streptococcus that interferes with the immune response to the pathogen. That may make the children more susceptible to infections. Please remember that it's possible the seemingly defective Immune response towards strep that we report could be due to some of those kids being carriers of the bacteria rather than actually having active strep infections. In future work, it will be helpful to determine which kids have true recurrent infections and which kids are strep carriers. Unquote. All right. Let's end the night with some astronomy news. Not sure my voice will go much farther anyway. A new study suggests Saturn's largest moon, Titan, gets some of its thick atmosphere by cooking organic molecules in a warm core. Mmm, yum. Makes me hungry just to think about it. Dr. Kelly Miller and her colleagues reported in the January 22nd issue of Astrophysical Journal about Titan in this story. It appears that the decay of radioactive elements may warm Titan's core from within, splitting nitrogen and carbon off from complex organic molecules. Once free, those elements can recombine into nitrogen and methane and escape into the atmosphere. That process may account for half the nitrogen and all the methane observed in Titan's atmosphere. Where Titan's thick nitrogen-rich haze comes from has long puzzled planetary scientists. Other moons are too small and cold to shroud themselves in gas. This is why Titan is the only moon big enough in our solar system to have an atmosphere. Previous studies suggested that Titan's nitrogen could have been delivered in the ammonia ice of comets. That ammonia could be split apart by sunlight or broken up by the force of a comet striking the moon's surface, creating the gaseous nitrogen molecules that fill Titan's skies. Miller says, quote, Even a short time ago, I had this conception that comets are mostly ice with only a little bit of rock. I was surprised to see that 50% of the comet 67P was rock and organics, and only half was ice. Ammonia from comets could still donate nitrogen to Titan's atmosphere. But I wondered what role those organics might play too, unquote. In our new study, Miller and her colleagues figured that comets were likely the building blocks for Saturn's moons, since the Saturn system is so cold. The researchers assumed that Titan's core was originally a sort of snowball built from comets. Given the insights from Comet 67P, the team calculated what ingredients Titan would have started out with and how those ingredients could change over time. Titan's thick atmosphere, plus a subsurface ocean, a hydrologic system of hydrocarbon lakes, rivers, and rain, and a veneer of organic compounds and other life-friendly molecules make the moon a popular target for the search for alien life. So far, organics have only been detected on Titan's surface, but hints that organic compounds may exist in the core means that the molecules may also exist at the bottom of Titan's subsurface ocean, an environment that could be a cozy cradle for life. Miller finishes up the paper with this statement. Quote, the thing that excites us the most is the idea that those complex organic molecules are already in Titan's core. That makes it one step easier to think about habitable environments at the base of Titan's ocean. Unquote. Well, that's all for now. Happy Chinese New Year of the Pig. Remember, an intermediate speed is better when you want to jump a wall, live near grandma, keep watching Titan Skies, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim
3: Campanella. Always a pleasure, James. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much, lad. It's like I'm on this kind of high with the bloody puppy. Right, Jim, honestly, thank you, lad. Nice to, nice to have it again. Indeedy. So that is the show. Put the bed, tucked up and finished. Yes, I hope you liked Michael's story. Fantastic. Michael, thank you so much. And like I say, Graham, huge thank you. Sorry to say, I don't know if you, how you kind of left Podcastle. I didn't know that, to be honest. So, former co-editor. Ah. Get over here and get your arse. Get your arse over here, lad. And JJ Caminella, thank you, sir. So, that is it. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me.
2: This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.
6: I don't get much.
2: I've barely left the ground. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm mooning, waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. I'm pointing them to the moon. But the work is going slowly. It Won't get to you anytime soon. signal getting through turn on your radio I wanna talk to you This signal's going light speed By the time I get my say I might already be on to you and on my way But you're so far from here And at best i move moving slow, so I'm No getting through Someday, if books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there.